I know that every relationship you are in is hard because you are in it. <laughs> okay. Right. And uh, I think there's one title of a book that summed up it quite well. It says friendships, a mess worth making. Okay. That's all friendships. It's a mess <laughs> worth making. Okay. All relationships. It's a mess worth making because that's the thing. There's no relationship where you don't contribute your sin. There's no relationship where that is not a reality. But for us as Christians, there's no place where we can be more like God than in our relationships. That's an opportunity. Why? Because remember, God is a triune God. God from all of eternity is a community within unity. From all of eternity, God has enjoyed the ecstatic, sweet, perfect, joyful love and fellowship within himself. God didn't create the world because he was lonely. They didn't create mankind. He wanted someone to talk to. The fellowship and love of his son is a billion times more enjoyable than our fellowship. But it's just the overflow of his love. And that's why when he made man, what did he say about Adam? Looked at Adam, oh, poor Adam alone. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And the two shall become what? One. You see, that's the picture of the Trinity. If you look at marriage, you have a, a glimpse, an image of God relationships, community within unity. Then there's a church. Church, community within unity. People from different tribes, different times, different nations coming together. Now we're trying to rub shoulders. And again, we're sinful human beings and we bring our sin and our baggage to the party. And guess what? It's going to be hard. And that's why you have no greater opportunity than to, to be like God than when you come into relationships. When you are hurt, you can be like God to forgive. Right? When someone doesn't deserve something from you, you can be like God to give love to your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. When, when people don't deserve your kindness, you give them kindness, you give them the tender heart, right? Because isn't that what God does for us? God treats us not according to what our sin deserves. He treated Christ what our sins deserved, and he treats us what his righteousness deserves. And we can do this because we have been made new. If you're a Christian, if you have experienced true conversion, true born, being born again, you are a new person. And that's how this whole section starts. This whole section really is bookended or sandwiched between our identity of being new. Look at chapter 424. It says, we should put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then chapter 5 as one says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we are new, we have been made new, and now we must imitate God because we've been created in His image. Now we are copying and pasting what God is like into our relationships, into our marriages, into our church life. And that's what the point is here. And, and how are we like God? By putting off our old man and putting on the new man, especially in our relationships. But there is someone that is opposing this process of our relationships becoming more more like Christ and more like God. There's someone that when he sees us as a church functioning in this new creation, this new unity, that hates that with a passion. There's someone that when he sees our church reminds him of his ultimate doom. And he's right in our text that you pick it up in verse 27, right? Give no opportunity to the devil. Interesting. Our relationships, have you ever thought of your relationships as spiritual warfare? Your marriage as spiritual warfare. 
our church life as spiritual warfare? Who hates our unity? The devil does. Who puts logs on our anger? Who put logs? Who incites the gossip in our minds? Who wants us to not forgive, to not to let the sun set on our anger? Who wants us to not use to use corrupting speech? The devil does. Because he hates our unity. We are in our relationships is a war, not with one another. We do not wrestle, we're going to get there, against flesh and blood. That's not the problem. The problem isn't men and women. The problem is the spiritual war for our relationships, for purity, for holiness. That's why it's hard. And then, of course, we have our own indwelling sin to deal with as well. So it's not just the devil. It's us. It's the world. And that's why it's difficult. That's why no relationship will, will survive if you don't work at it, if you don't put effort in it. But we have help. There's another person in this passage. Who did you pick up? We have almighty help, someone that indwells us, that has sealed us for the day of redemption, the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, that says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit wants us to be one. The Spirit is leading us to true kindness, true forgiveness, true unity. And that's why we should keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace it's his work right so our ordinary relationships are not so ordinary <laughs> our ordinary conversation are not so ordinary that you might think the devil is involved the spirit is involved and we can either yield or obey or wherever we can go we should go to the holy spirit side right and that's why we will we'll structure this passage as well with three overarching commands to follow and we only look at the first commandment this afternoon to because we're going to go into detail with these, these relationships. The first command is don't give in to the devil. In your relationships, do, don't give in to the devil. We're going to focus on that today. Next week, Lord willing, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then third command, be imitators of God. That's the outline. That's what we'll do. But we'll just zoom in today to don't give in to the devil in your relationships. And how do we give in? By Paul shows us four sins. There are four sins, if you allow these sins to fester, if these are your habitual sins of your life, like lying, anger, stealing, and corrupt words, that find, the devil finds a home in those relationships. The devil is comfortable there. And God's method for dealing with this is the put-off, put-on principle. Stop doing the bad, start doing the good. That's God's principles. And we're going to see that right through. So the first sin we must stop doing to, to make no room for the devil is to stop lying and start speaking the truth. Look at verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. There's nothing more natural to us as human beings than lying. In evangelism, Ray Comfort likes to ask this question to people, right? How many lies have you told in your entire life? And few of them can give a number, right? Few of them like, too many, <laughs> countless. People can't answer it because they can't, right? It, it, it really is true. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees and showing us what the devil is like in John 8, 44? Listen to John 8, verse 44. It says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. To lie is to be like the devil. But to lie seems to be as natural to us as breathing. Why? Because we are his children from birth. 
from birth we are the devil's children. That's why we do it so naturally, so easily. We are all his children, right? And where do the, the children of the devil end up? Revelations 21 verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So lying is, is not a small sin. And I think when we come to this text, we should, we should already say to ourselves something, that there are sins that we should hate that the world respects. There, are such, there is such a thing as respectable sins. But we have to say, we don't just hate the gross ones, right? We don't just hate the ones that's obviously destructive to our lives, although all sin is destructive. But even the sins that the world deems respectable and good, like lying, right? We say we hate that. God hates that. It's being a child of the devil. So let me list a few ways we commonly lie. First one, blatant lying. Very obvious, Probably one of the most common ways we lie is by just denying the truth. This happens often in relationship, doesn't it? Or what's wrong with you? Nothing. And then there isn't nothing wrong. There is something. And again, what does it take? It takes self-control to say, yes, there is something wrong, but can we speak about it later? Or have that self-control, okay? But that's lying. Or I'll pray for you. Right? How many times have we blatantly lie like that? But it's sinful, beloved. Before you say, I'll pray for you, think about it. Am I going to pray for you? Okay, that's blatant lies. What about white lies? White lies. We excuse this by saying we want to spare someone's feelings. So, so Christian women, don't ask a question. You don't want the truth. <laughs> Do I look fat in this dress? Okay? Don't ask that question. Don't put us on the spot. But, but men don't say, I'm a Christian. I'm going to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> okay? No, okay? Don't forget the love part. There's a love part okay, that you have to add to the truth. But the point is, Christians are not even to speak white lies. You can speak, white li- you can speak the truth in wisdom, which you do need a lot of, right, when you speak to people, and in love, Right? but still to speak the truth. Now, like I said, I don't mean to say, like people should just say it like, so you get those people that, that, that pride themselves of saying, you know what, people don't like what I say because I just say it like it is, okay? That's also not right. They are, they are about as lovable and enjoyable as hugging a cactus. <laughs> like that's not enjoy, people don't enjoy being in that person's presence because they, don't, they just go out and tell you the truth that hurts you, right? But that's not what we mean here. We're meaning about the truth in love. But it's wrong to speak white lies. We speak the truth in love. Over-exaggeration is another form of commonly lying. How long did you work today? The whole day, from morning to evening. And you like spend an hour in the morning and then you watch Netflix the rest of the day and like, you know? And, or that person never, never, is always a jerk. It's all that he does. And he just didn't greet you that day, right? Or, or, or usually any sentence with the following words, always and never, you know a lie is coming. You always do that. You never do that. You always this. That's very rarely true. Very rarely. That someone is always like that or never like something, right? So we don't say those words. We're careful with our words. We actually think about, is this exaggerating or is this actually the truth? False promises, another f- common form of lying. 
I'll do that tomorrow. Again, like I'll pray for you. That's almost part of that lie as well. I'll contact you in the week. And I just want to say, I feel this one particularly as a pastor because often this form of lying comes from a good heart. You want to do good to people, but then you forget and you lie and you, you really hurt people. People, you forget the, the promise, but people remember it. And that's why Jesus said, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Your yes and your yes should be as a promise. When you said you will do something, it should be as if you've made a promise. That person should know it's the done deal because the person said he, he will do it. Like the wife who reminds her husband to do that task that he said he will do. And he says, you don't have to remind me every six months. I said to you, I will do it. <laughs> okay. Now that's, that, that's part of this false promises, right? That's not saying I will do it and like, please just stop reminding me. But right, but you, are you going to do it? Just do it then, okay? You see how easy, I just want to show you of these examples, how easy it is for us to lie. It's, it's common, it's easy. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. But, but Paul gives us a reason why we shouldn't lie to one another. Look at the reason in verse 25. He says, speak the truth, for we are members one of another. We are a body. We are one body. A body doesn't lie to itself, right? Your lying is not just harming that person, it's harming yourself. Imagine if your eye could lie to your foot. There's no rock in front of you. You can go. And then boom, you know, it's always the pinky toe <laughs> that connects, right? <laughs> or imagine your, your, your eyes lies to your tongue and says, this is not poison. You can drink this. Right? Again, the lying hurts yourself. In the same way, God has made us a body. Our lies affects all of us. It affects us as a church. It's not just one person that gets hurt. We get hurt. So put off the old man, stop lying, embrace the truth, speak the truth, even if it hurts, but always sugar it with love. Listen to this proverb, 26, 7 verse 6. I love this verse. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We love each other enough to tell each other the truth. That's what Christianity is. We will rather hurt one another in love than to kiss one another and not love one another. That's the, so if we want to be a devil-free church, be sure that you need to put off lying, put on the truth. And here's, but here's the second sin. We, can, we should stop to make no room for the devil in our lives and relations. And that is the sin of anger. The sin of anger. Look at verse 26. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is actually a quote from an Old Testament psalm. Psalm 4 verse 4 says, you should be angry. Wait a minute. I thought anger is wrong. Why does this verse tell us, command us to be angry? It's a command. If you don't obey it, you're sinning. Well, simply because of this. There is an anger which is right. There is something like righteous anger. There's something like holy anger. God is angry. God is a perfect God without sin, and he's a God who is angry every day over injustice, over sin, over those who profane his name. Jesus was angry. So angry that he flipped over tables. Remember, a man without sin had holy, righteous anger. Anger is, there is something as righteous anger, and that's the anger you feel when you see injustice, when you see crime, when you see sin, and when God's name is blasphemed, defamed, ignored, trampled underfoot. If someone hurts my wife, either physically or verbally, there will be anger. And that anger is holy and good, 
right? In, on the other side, if I, was, if I felt nothing, someone hurts my wife or insults my wife. No, I'm a Christian. I don't get angry. Do you even love your wife? <laughs> Do you even care for your wife, right? And so it is with God. If someone sins, there's a psalm that says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. We love our God so much that when people break his laws, it breaks our hearts. When we see his name being trampled underfoot, when people blaspheme him, use his name as nothing, distorts his character, distorts his glory, distorts his word, what should we feel? The appropriate emotion is anger. If you don't feel angry, do you love God? Do you even love him? But of course, I think if we are honest, a large amount of our anger is not in this category of righteous anger. Because just scan down to verse 31. Just scan down there. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and what? Anger be put away from you. So verse 26 says, be angry. While verse 31 says, put away anger. And there you see that's the sinful kind, the self-centered kind, not the God-centered kind of anger, the self-centered kind. Someone drives in front of us on the road. Someone irritates us. Someone doesn't act the way we want them to act. Someone robs us of our plans, our schedule, our, right, whatever it might be. Someone, something costs us money. list goes on. We blow up, and that is sinful anger. Even with righteous anger, Paul says, don't hold it too long. If you have a righteous anger, deal with it quickly. Don't cling to it. Verse 26, be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's the picture there? Is deal with this anger quickly because it quickly becomes corrupt. Even the righteous anger, if you don't deal with it, it's quickly going to become sinful anger if you don't deal with it before the sun's in. I don't think you should literally... Before the sun sets, go and speak to the person that you might need to speak to. But as soon as possible, ASAP, go and make things right, okay? Because anger is a viral emotion. You notice in Facebook, what posts gets spread quicker? Is it the good news that, right, that something has been fixed <laughs> or something like that? Or is it the, the injustice, the, the, the crime? And those things spread. Why? Because anger is viral. Anger spreads. Anger is contagious. Listen to Proverbs 22, 24. That's why you should not even be friends with someone that's angry. Listen to that. It says, make no friendship with the man given to anger. Nor go with the wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. I don't know if any of you have experienced this. You, you, could have been a, you could have a heart completely free of anger, and you spend 10 minutes with someone that's just angry. You walk away. You just feel angry as well. It's like it's rubbing off on you. And that's what anger does. Anger is contagious. And it works like a slow-working drug seeping into your heart, seeping into your emotions as well. God says, don't be friends with such a man. Don't. You, you too will become like that man or that woman. As one commentator said, righteous anger is like manna from heaven that breeds worms if it's kept overnight. So don't keep your anger overnight. As Kent Hughes wrote, the day of our anger should be the day we deal with it. Deal with it as quickly as you can. How many relationships would have been spared if we simply followed this basic counsel? How many marriages would have been saved? How many churches would have not gone through a church split? How many broken and shattered hearts could have been mended if we just radically obeyed this verse? Be angry, 
and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I think marriages especially are the chief culprits here. Things in a marriage, a husband and a wife, that, that, that's been bothering them for years. Right? They are angry with each other, but they've never talked about it. They let the sun just set. Let the sun just set. And what happens? Right? They don't make it. They, they, they start to snap at each other for the smallest thing. Not because the small thing frustrates them, because they have this, this whole load of anger that they've never spoken about. They've never learned to forgive one another. They've never learned to say, I promise to forgive you. I'm not going to bring it up again in the future or talk about it behind your back. But then look at the interesting counsel God gives us. How do we deal with anger? Look at what it says in verse 26. It says, be angry and what? Do not sin. What does that imply about our anger? What does that imply about our choices when we feel our angry emotions bubbling up, tempting us to, to peel, to come through our eyes, come through our words, come through our actions. What's the implication here? You and I can say no to anger. We can choose what we will do with our anger. Isn't it such a common idea today? People have no control, right? The moment that I'm angry, the, I'm going to just say things. I'm just going to do things. Sorry, I'm just an angry person. What does God say? Be angry and do not sin. You can control yourself. You don't have to raise your voice. You don't have to slam the door. You don't have to be irritated, be impatient, be these things. Because you can be angry, yes, and you cannot sin at the same time. That is incredibly freeing and humbling at the same time. Why is it freeing? Because now it's something you can do something about it. It's humbling because now you have to confess. You have to repent if you've sinned in anger. Right? Many times I have to confess to my boys, my sons. Right? I've sinned. I've been angry with you unjustly. Please forgive daddy. Daddy also needs Jesus. I also need the gospel. And that's how we deal with it. We, we, we take responsibility for this thing. Let me mention a few anger sins, which I think Christians sometimes overlook in the put-off process. Remember, put-off, we want to put these sins off. And sometimes we don't see these sins as anger, but it is. First one is irritation. Being irritated with someone is a form of anger. Right? Again, a respectable sin. Who doesn't get irritated? All of us do. But again, that's, that's anger's baby brother. Right? That's the baby brother. And if you feed it, it's going to become the big brother. Passive aggressiveness is another form of revenge. I will get you back for what you've done to me. You did not do what I wanted you to do. You, you interrupted me. You changed my schedule. I'm just, not, I'm just going to show you a bit of body language. That's vengeance. I'm, gonna, I'm paying you back evil for evil. That is anger. Like we already said, impatience, right? Love, sorry, just on back on the irritable one as well. Love is not irritated. Irritable, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is focused on others, not focused on yourself. The same one, next one is impatience. Being impatient is another form of anger. Again, love is patient. I think it's the first, the first list of that, that, that list. But what does anger do? Anger makes us impatient with those who are in need. We're usually impatient with those who are weak. People we don't deem as strong as us, as smart as us, or as, as intelligent as us, right? Why can't my children just not mess on the floor? Okay? So what happens there? We're angry with our children 
for being children. You are angry with someone not being like you. And that's wrong. Bitterness, another form, right? But that is, that's now the mature form of anger when it's retained. And then lastly, sinful speech as well. Using blowing up, using cutting words. And we're going to look at that a little bit later with the corrupt speech. But this is what happens in the church and in Christian. When this anger starts to seep in, who gets an open door into our relationships? In verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. If nothing else motivates you to deal with your anger, let this be the one. Close the door to the devil. You can hold on to your unforgiveness and stand on your justice and be manipulated by the devil. Those, or you can be used, if I can put it on quotation marks, and forgive and rather not be manipulated by the devil. Don't allow your anger to remain for days and days. Deal with it. This means we need to have the courage to talk to one another. So it comes back to verse 25. We need to be honest. We need to be able to deal with our anger by speaking to one another about it. Remember there was a time in my marriage, for example, Deborah wanting to speak to me, but she found no way to do that. And so she wrote a letter to me to tell me that I'm busy disqualifying myself as a pastor. I'm busy going downhill. And if I don't repent, I should step down from the ministry. And she wrote that in a letter to me. Because she found no way, but she had the courage to do that. And I'm so thankful for that. God used that. We need that courage. We need that honesty with one another. We need to be able to say, if, you, if I have made you angry as a pastor, please come speak to me. Don't let the sun set. If you are upset with anyone in the church, don't let the sun set. Go, send the WhatsApp, make the phone call, make the coffee arrangement. Go and speak. Remember Jesus' command in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, what should you do? Go, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You see, the devil wants the logs of anger to be first discussed with everybody behind their backs before you go to the person. No, keep the circle as small as possible. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You must go. And so our church will become a devil-free church if we make no room for lying and if we make no room for anger to fester in our hearts. But here's a third sin, a third sin that we need to put off if we are to frustrate the devil's plans in our relationships. And that is the sin of stealing. The sin of stealing. Look at verse 28. It says, Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The put-off part is quite straightforward. Stop stealing. How do we steal? We steal in many ways. We steal... Physically, taking something doesn't belong to us, not paying our taxes is a form of stealing, pilfering from the petty cash, not working the hours we are paid to work by not giving to the church. All of those in Scripture are forms of stealing, taking things that doesn't belong to you. Now, the opposite of this is verse 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Paul says, we need to earn our money, our income, honestly. Get the job. Work hard. Earn your own living. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. 
Now, of course, we realize sometimes it's not possible for us to get a job. Sometimes that's outside of our control. But what does the text say? Doesn't, the text doesn't say someone must work. It says someone must be what? Willing to work. Someone has a desire to work. And that's why often I, um, I've learned this from Michael Rogers as well, a taste for beggars. When they come and they want food, because what does the text say? Those who are not willing to work should not what? Not even eat. Right? So we shouldn't even feed people that's lazy. That's what this text says. It's bad for them. It's not good for their soul. So what do we do? It's a test. Give them a black bag. Say, if you pick up all the trash around the block and come back, I'll feed you. And I'll give you some money as well for that. If the person is grumbling and doesn't want to do that, it's like, okay, then I'm not going to give you any money. I'm not going to give you any food because that's not good for you. I love you more than that. That's the, Paul's words here are strong. If you're not willing to work, you, you should not eat. God has designed working. Remember, working itself is good. Working was even before sin came into the world. Spurgeon said, even a lazy person won't be happy in paradise because the perfect man is a working man. <laughs> okay? A lazy person would have been frustrated in Eden who had to work and keep the garden. <laughs> okay? But that's God's desire for us to work. But what if our work is not enough? How, can we, how will we make sure we are, we'll have enough? Well, our scripture reading as well, Matthew 6, 25, Jesus said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into bonds, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So we work as we trust and rest in God to provide for us. Listen, Jesus did not die for birds. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell birds. And birds won't reign with Christ one day when he comes again. But he did all of that for us. Will he not feed us? Will he not take care of us? The birds are better theologians than some of us, right? They're better philosophers. They're like, the, the, God feeds us. Why, we should be, why should we be anxious? Look at these anxious humans running around. They... Probably they don't have a heavenly father. That's probably the only reason, because we have one. Right? But now I want you to imagine someone coming in church, sharing their testimony, and they say, I was a thief. I stole. But I, God saved me. I stopped. And I got the job. And now I work. And all of us would be clapping hands, right? But Paul says that's only half the job. You're still missing something. Look at the rest of verse 28. What does verse 28 say? Why should you work? doing honest labor, so that he may have something to share with someone in need. Your heart is not really free from, from, from stealing until you learn to give. Share what you have, to give your money away. Remember, in our relationships, we want to be like God. How is God like? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Galatians 2.20, I love the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Love gives. That should be your desire for why you want money. Lord, give me resources. Help me to be independent from my family that I can provide for my own needs so that I can also give to those in need. So I'm going to give you a few very basic, simple ways to become a good steward of your money. And if you have more questions, just come afterwards and speak to Phil. Okay. Uh, <laughs> By the way, Phil is actually working on a, 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 a course for us as well. So, brother, I'm looking forward to that. But here's just my baby steps, right? Biblical baby steps. The first one is live within your means. 
This is a biblical principle. Live within your means. Don't make debt quickly. And if you are in debt, get out of debt as quickly as you can. And don't make new debt until you have paid off your old debt, if you can. Some people go on vacation, and they pay with that vacation with their credit cards. They can't afford, and before that credit card is paid off, they go on the next vacation. And that's the recipe for financial ruin. Live within your means. Secondly, live simply. Often we are not good stewards of our money because we want the biggest house, the newest phone, or the car of our dreams. And so we cannot give anything because we're always busy paying off all of our luxuries. And so rather downscale your life, live within your live simply that you have more to give. That again, it causes it, it, it we have to have a heart that's free from the love of money to do this. And the irony of this is that the person often who has the fanciest whatever is often the poorest. And the person that's the poorest, living simply, also is the person, ironically, that's the richest, to give. And I think that's behind this proverb. Listen to this proverb, 13 verse 7. Proverbs 13 verse 7 says, One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. One pretends to be rich by always looking outwardly very wealthy, but they're actually in reality very poor, always in debt or paying off the next thing, while the, sometimes someone pretends to be poor because they're living simply, while they are secretly building their wealth, and actually in reality very, very rich. You see, that's just the principle. Live simply that you are free to give. Another basic principle is save your money. Save your money. This is another biblical principle. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, at the end says, Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. <laughs> it's a biblical principle to save up for others, to save up that you can provide. Many of us live from paycheck to paycheck. As the money comes in, so the money co goes out. Don't do that. Downscale your life that you are able to save more money and that you are able to give more money. Which leads to another basic financial stewardship principle is have a budget. A budget. A budget frees you up to give. It's amazing that once you plan where every rand goes in your budget, that you are so much more freer to give because you know you can afford it. And then you're also free to say no because you know, listen, my child needs this, my family needs this, I can't give anything more. But that frees us up, planning where our money goes. And lastly, prioritize giving to the church. Prioritize giving to the church. Just like you prioritize giving to your, your physical family, so you also prioritize giving to your church family. That's a priority. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be worthy, considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So your next paycheck, I'll share my bank details with you. <laughs> no, so that's not the point there, but I'll tell you now. But for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves its wages. 1 Corinthians 9, 14, same way the Lord commands those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But the point there is just pay your pastors, right? Um, pay them well. Let them not be worried about their finances. Love the gospel. Love the word of God that you support them by giving to your church. Of course, we should be good stewards of that. And there is abuse in this. And, and I'm not talking about the abuse where... People get rich and they're flying in their jets and they're saying the only reason you don't have a jet is because you haven't prayed for it, you know, and those type of parts. Not talking about that, okay? But really just supporting your church, supporting your church family. And that's why Jesus commands us in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all these things you're anxious about financially. 
will be added to you. The things you need, right? The bread, the, the clothing in the context as well. So, beloved, we prioritize the kingdom of God in our giving. First, by supporting your church, then seeing how you can support, maybe drawing the circle further, missionaries or other believers that, that need your help, and all those who truly preach the gospel, and, and prioritize even serving the church with hospitality, inviting people over. It, it, it costs money to actually have people over at your house, right? But prioritize that. Be financially um, a giver. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Phil will take us further into the, the, the weightier matters. <laughs> okay. but, um, but let us not give room in the devil through greed, through covetousness. Let us, let us close the door to the devil by, by working hard and by working hard so that we may be free to give. And here's the last sin. We need to close the door to the devil to say no entry is corrupt speech. Corrupt Speech. That's verse 29. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Literally, the word corrupting talk is rotten, decaying words, words that eat other people up. The words themselves have that corrupting effect on us. We underestimate the power of our words, right? Proverbs 18, 21, all of you would know this. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Our words are powerful. It can destroy a life, and it can build a life. Now, this doesn't mean if you speak death or life over your life, then that's going to happen to you. We don't have creative power. Only God has that power. But this does say that if you have corrupting speech, death, Guess what's going to be around you? Your relationships are going to be decaying. It's going to be dead. But if you, your words are life-giving, grace-giving, guess what your atmosphere of your life is going to be? Life. That's the point. And if you, what you sow, you will reap. Okay? So that's the point of this proverb. Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, that's the idea. These words are killing us. And here's a couple of examples of, of corrupting speech. Number one, gossiping. Gossiping is corrupting. Speaking evil behind someone's back, it corrupts the person you are talking to, right? This person might have had a good idea of this person, but now after speaking to you, this person thinks twice. St. Augustine had a sign at his dining room which read, he who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. I think that should be our attitude. If anyone speaks evil of an of a absent man or woman, not welcome here. What about excessive negative speech? Just excessively negative all the time. So you're not necessarily gossiping. You're just always negative. Constantly complaining, constantly criticizing, constantly. That has a corrupting effect on you, right? It often brings others down to that same miserable low that you are in. I don't know if any of you are on those WhatsApp groups that shares like local news. Yo, it's hard. Eh? I mute those things so often because it's like so, so negative. Everything is just awful. When people do things right, that's also awful. <laughs> Everything's awful. And, uh, number three, suggestive joking. Suggestive joking. Some people cannot stop making jokes about sex and so corrupts those who hear it. And that's wrong. We will go, we get into this verse, but look at five verse three to, to four, chapter five in Ephesians. It says, sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So some, some, some topics corrupt as well, right? There's, there's like, like the topic of sex, it's a good gift from God, but if that's all people talk about, if that's all, it has a corrupting effect on our minds. What about cutting jokes or words, right? It's cutting us. If people use it to criticize us, words have the power to destroy us. Parents, and this is, I think parents especially, provoke their children to anger by never giving an encouraging word to them, right? The only thing parent would say to a child is what they should do better, how they are failing, what they are doing wrong. There's no encouragement. There's no well done. There's no I'm proud of you. There's no I love you. It's always do that better, do that better, do that better. Come here, do that, do this. Or stop failing, stop doing that. And that, that's corrupting. That corrupts a child. Now, I think sometimes men and women get it wrong as well with their relationships, right? Uh, so, for example, a man-to-man relationship, sometimes men feel quite built up when they tell each other how ugly they are, right? It's like, yo, you look ugly today. It's like, oh, thanks, brother. That's wonderful, you know? And they, like, start hitting each other in the chest or whatever. And then, like, they walk away. It's like, wow, what a good chat that was, right? <laughs> and now they do that same thing with their wives, okay? Or they start bullying their wives. Very recently, okay, I don't know. Am I the only one that can sometimes do this? Okay, but, um, and you realize she doesn't like it. She doesn't like it. And you're like, why can't you just be like one of my friends, right? But what does the Bible say is live with your wife in an understanding manner, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And the point there is she's not a man. Don't treat her like a man. Don't treat her like just another one of the guys. But again, that's corrupting speech. So we sometimes get that wrong. Okay. And what about the wives to the, to the men? What is corrupting speech there as well? Constantly criticizing him, never respecting him, never thinking highly of her husband, always thinking he's a failure in whatever he does. That's corrupting. And that's, that's what we should be stopping. And we're close to the end. What about excessive talking? Excessive talking. All the introverts are just thanking God for this point right now. The introverts are like, pastor, preach this point well. <laughs> excessive talking. And it's a subtle sin, right? But what is at the heart of someone that cannot stop talking? <laughs> What's at the heart of that? It's, it's really, it is selfishness. It is pride. It, it says this, my ideas are more important than your ideas, right? My story is better than your story. It's corruptive because it puts people down. It tells people they are not important. James 1.19 gives this counsel to extroverts, okay? It says, know this, my beloved, that every person be quick to hear Slow to speak, slow to anger. So all the extroverts are feeling the convicting power of the Holy Spirit right now. But let's now shift the table and speak of another corrupting talk to the introverts, which is no talk. No talk at all has just as bad an effect on a relationship than someone that cannot stop talking. Right? You ask for an opinion. You ask for the counsel. Like, I don't know. Now, don't ask me, okay? And that's just as that can be just as frustrating because it's not loving. It's the same the same problem the extroverts have, the introverts have. Love has self control, and you even need self control to talk. You even need self control to say this is really my my idea, my opinion, right? So instead of just saying I don't know or just brushing it off, listen and respond. That's encouraging. That's edifying. So instead, our words should be focusing like the rest of verse 29. We'll look at what it says. It says, 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What our focus should be in conversations is how can I give grace to this person? Often we, we sometimes come into relationships and conversations and we're scared of what the other person might think of us and therefore we either are quiet, we flatter, but rather coming into this conversation asking, Lord, help me not to fear this person, but help me to ask, how can I bless this person? How can I give grace to this person? And that just shifts the focus away from you, which is why you're fearful, you're focused on yourself, to that person. It's like, how can I be good to this person? Even if I have to say something, speak the truth in love, right? But that's our aim. Our aim is to build up. And listen, it says, as fits the occasion, meaning there's certain times that might be better to have a conversation than others. Proverbs 27 verse 14, one of my favorite, favorite song, Proverbs I learned on my honeymoon, says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. I walked in like my, literally the first, the first morning, woke up singing songs, opening the curtains, and Deborah cursed me in her heart <laughs> right there and then. It's like, leave me alone. But uh, so definitely more a morning person and an evening person. That's how it works. Okay, extrovert, introverts, those two marry. That's normally how it goes. Okay, but the point is, there's better times to speak to someone than others. Listen to Proverbs fifteen twenty three. Says to make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season. Oh, how good it is! I want to say, especially when you want to correct someone, when you want to come to say, listen, there's a certain thing I want to talk to you about, or there's something that that, that hurt me. Choose your time there wisely. Have you prayed about this? Have you asked God to give you the best possible words? Is this really the truth? Do I have all the facts? Right? So, so be slow to just go and correct. But you should and choose the time wisely. Um, I, if I may use my godly wife as an example, is she doesn't correct me on Sunday. Sundays is my golden day. right? Because she knows that Sundays I'm preoccupied with my sermons and with serving the church. So she's waiting for my off day on Monday. Right? And then she shares what I've done wrong and how I failed. And what a blessed wife I have for that. Okay? But the same thing for you as well is choose your time wisely. There's sometimes better times than others to speak. Choose your words wisely. So, beloved, to have relationships that glorifies God is hard work. It's not, it doesn't come naturally. In, in fact, it's spiritual war. The devil wants us to lie. He wants us to cover up. He wants us to be angry. He wants us to have unresolved issues in our lives. He wants us to steal and to be lazy. And he wants us to use corrupting words over and over again. So let us resist him. We do not wrestle against flesh. We, we, we wrestle against him. Let us turn to Jesus. Let us follow him. Let us strive to become more like him in our relationship. Let us put off these sinful habits that come so easily. Let us put on the new godly opposites of all of them. Let us speak the truth in love, even if it hurts. Let's deal with our anger quickly by confessing our sins, not letting the sun set. Let us work hard, be good stewards of our money, that we may be able to share. Let us refuse to use corrupting speech, but focus on the needs of others that it may give grace. And let us then rely in all of that on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us, because you and I cannot do this on our own. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, who of us can say that in, in any of these four sins that we have clean hands and a pure heart? Oh Lord, all of us have fallen short. 
of your perfect standard. And Lord, maybe some of our sins have caused serious brokenness in our families, our relationships, maybe even in church or in marriage or with our children. Father, help us not to excuse our sin. Lord, even if the world respects these sins, Lord, I pray that help us that we would hate it because you hate them. Help us to stand against them. And Father, I pray that we would become a church that where, the, where truth is spoken with love, where we are quick to deal with our anger, where we are working hard to provide for our own needs and the needs of our church family and beyond. And Lord, that we would have words, chosen words, um, self-controlled words that give grace to those who hear. So Lord, please help us. We need your power. We need your Holy Spirit. We thank you that if we ask, we know, Lord, that you would graciously give it to us. Help us to repent and help us to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.